And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg. We've got a lot to talk about today. Taiwan Walker, the taco hero, making his spring training debut for the Mets on Tuesday. We've got some injury news, some more rumblings about a Francisco Lindor extension. We'll talk a little bit defense, bullpen, and here to discuss all of that and more, as always, is the Athletics Beat Mets beat writer, Tim Britton. Tim, what's up? Not much, Ted. It's like a nuts and bolts spring training episode. We don't have to do, there's nothing huge going on, which is, is well, I mean, maybe the Lindor extension, if it gets there, is huge. But uh, this is kind of where we've reached the, the quiet calm of spring training. We've got games going on. Nothing that important is happening in them. So uh, it, it's time to just cover everything, I guess, at this point. I'm, I mean, not to get, you know, too existential about it, but really, you know, it's baseball. It's it's. It's it's all equally important, really, right? It's, it's a, the the games are meaningful in September if you want them to be, uh, just as they are in in March. Uh, and and I want to get into those nuts and bolts, but before we do, and I don't want to start every show with pizza related personal inquiries, but a listener tipped me off to something I do want to address with you, uh, and you'll get no judgments out of me as someone who eats a lot of Taco Bell and a lot of White Castle. Uh, but I do want to give yourself to, a chance to defend yourself before this, you know, becomes a thing. If this guy wants to, you know, cancel you and and cost you your New York, New Jersey credentials online, what is the story with with ordering Domino's in Philadelphia? Oh God, I have to try to remember this now. Um, this is like years ago, uh, I believe. Uh, he's on it. We got we got it. It was any. I should say he also asked a really good question that we're we're probably going to get to next week or in the next episode. Uh, but he also brought up the fact that you ordered Domino's pizza in Philadelphia, which sounded to me like some sort of. You are a New Jersey guy. You know. You know from pizza. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, first of all, I should say just my opinion is that Domino's is not pizza. It's a different kind of meal. Like mm-hmm. when, when you're in a pizza mood, you don't say, what should I get? Domino's. You have to be in a very specific kind of Domino's mood, uh, I which is, you know, hardly understand that. Yeah. You can only be in really between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. Uh, at any point in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, it's basically your college life. Um, and I haven't had Domino's in years. Uh, I don't think I've had Domino's since the attempted order in Philadelphia, which I, f- I remember the, the circumstances clearly. Uh, it was the, the, that the Mets had a very late game or something had broken late. And then we had done the podcast late uh, or something. Uh, and so I hadn't eaten since like 7 p.m. And it was now like 1.30 in the morning. And I was hungry. Uh, and I maybe this was the year I was staying in the Philadelphia airport Marriott which is uh, not in downtown Philadelphia. No. Uh, there is not like, uh, you know, Reading Terminal Market across so the street. If it was your only option, I don't see why we could possibly judge you for that. If that's what you're telling me is that Domino's was your option and you needed food, then of course you should have Domino's. And and here's the thing is that Domino's was not an option. <laughs> they were also closed at that oh. point or weren't delivering. So I, uh, I just went hungry that night uh, thinking about how I could have had Domino's if I had ordered like a half hour earlier or something like that. Um, ah, that's very that's very so, sad. So it's yeah, a, I, so, I was I was giving you a story to like so that I thought people would playfully rib you about, but instead it's uh, it's actually pitiable. You poor you. Tim in in his Philadelphia hotel room, far away from the city, just going hungry, just like going to bed without his dinner because <laughs> Domino's had to close. Uh, let's move on. Taiwan Walker making his Grapefruit League debut, his career Grapefruit League debut, because he's only played for uh, for Cactus League teams before, or at least he only had spring trainings with Cactus League teams before this year. No one cares about that. How did he look and what did he say about it? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. You talked about how this was, I think, his second or third spring training start in the last three years, which tells you how, uh, how little he's been able to get off the mound uh, in that time and, and how this is different for him going into a season 
uh, healthy with a full regular offseason and off of a year in which he was healthy uh, in 2020. Looked really good in the first inning, uh, pounded some 94-mile-an-hour fastballs uh, up in the zone using his uh, split changeup, uh, the same pitch that Marcus Stroman is trying to develop. It is one that Walker has had in his back pocket for a while and kind of used as a go-to, uh, used that to, to get a, a strikeout of Matt Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, and Carpenter, he Carpenter looked bad on that strike. It was like yeah. it was a good midseason looking strike strikeout. So he, he looked really good in the first. The second inning was a little rockier. Just struggled with his command a bit. Uh, and I, as I think Gary Cohen said on the broadcast, you do see that a lot in a guy's first spring training outing. Mm-hmm. Like the first inning flies by in ten pitches, and the second inning takes twenty five, uh, which is basically what happened with Walker. He gave up a couple runs, a couple base hits the other way. Nothing like really stung that hard no no home runs nothing hit really deep off of him uh and would have gotten out of it earlier if not for his own uh mistake at first base not being able to catch uh what would have been the final end of a a nice three six one double play had they been able to turn it so you know it's a fine first step like you can see what what you like about walker in that first inning uh and then you see how he refines things going forward yeah and i would say it's for a first spring training outing, like who cares if he allows some hits and some runs? I think what you're looking at is, you know, did he throw the ball over the plate? Certainly in the first inning, how, where's the velocity, which again is something I think we, we sort of pour over a little bit too much at, at this point in the spring, but mid nineties seems where he needs to be, where he wants to be. So, so there's no, I think no concern there. I, I don't know from watching it, not being a scout, I felt like, okay, that's, this is a fine place for, for Taiwan Walker coming out of, of game one of spring training. Yeah, we saw him work on some things, throwing some first pitch curveballs. It's uh, it, it's kind of an utterly unremarkable start uh, that, that we probably, you know, if I, if I were, let's say, a daily beat writer looking for like a 650-word sidebar to run in the Wednesday paper, I'm not sure that Taiwan Walker's start is worth all of that ink. Uh, although uh, I have definitely... Uh, gone into days like this as a daily beat writer and made sure that I made those 650 words sing as much as you could. Are you saying I should have started this show with the Jose Martinez injury? No, no. I, I mean, I, I think that that was that that was uh, um, Monday or Tuesday's daily story. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. the Martinez injury is like the the biggest thing that happened over the weekend, and it's still a guy who was you know part of the competition for the 26th man spot. You know, right. the Mets, before they got to spring training, had their biggest spring training injury so far, which is the Seth Lugo injury, which mm-hmm. knocks him out for six weeks. And I think because it, it happened before you get to spring, it's kind of underrated in how significant that can be. Um, you know, it's last year they, they had some pretty bad spring and summer camp injuries. You had uh, the Noah Syndergaard, uh, obviously Tommy John surgery. You had Stroman with the calf injury, which... Uh, well, that was wait. The the sitter guard was he was already, he was long out. He was that was that was a 2019 injury, right? Like, has, have I lost my mind? No, that was yeah, in no, 2020. That, that was oh yeah, it was man. The... You know what? That and and I I guess I can say this. That was the thing I heard. Someone told me in like 2015 in spring training, someone was like, "Sitter guard needs Tommy John surgery. It's it's gonna happen." And that was just this like rumbling that was just around forever like Noah Syndergaard's is he's a ticking time bomb he's gonna which is the type of thing you can really say I think about every pitcher especially pitchers who are thrown one-on-one um and so it's like it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy like no you could just point to any guy and be like well he's gonna need Tommy John surgery sure you know look at the inverted W or whatever you know whatever thing you're looking for uh because just bodies aren't wired to throw 101 miles an hour so I think the Syndergaard thing always gets confused in my head because it was just like to me the whole time even in his best years, it, it was sort of looming as like, well, I heard someone say in spring training a while back that like this is UCL is going to need uh, eventually. And yeah, I guess it was only last year. Yeah, I mean, like you're right. It, it's, it's been a, a long year. Tim. It's, it's been a it's long a, year. It's been a long time. Uh, Wednesday is, I think, the, the one year anniversary of the my last flight, which was home from uh, from Port St. Lucie uh, last year. And I think it was the day before or maybe the night of. Uh, the, the the Rudy Gobert stuff. Um, Rudy, Go- so- it's funny that that Rudy Gobert is like the benchmark. Like that's that's the moment for that, everyone. That's when it hit. When it's yeah, like, that's that's oh, the Ru- cultural. Rudy, where were you? Yeah, like a hundred years from now, it'll be like Rudy Gobert Day. Of course, was the day that that the the world shut down, or at least the United States shut down from the coronavirus, and the like catalyst was just this basketball player making a stupid joke. <laughs> 
And it, it's, you know, you think back to that time. And, and actually, it's, it's interesting to think about, like, Michael Conforto had just had his oblique injury uh, that week. I think it was, like, that Sunday or Monday. Uh, and, like, you know, for someone like Conforto, you wonder if they had a full season last year and he misses some time or he rushes back and his swing is out of shape like how different the conversation is around him. It seems like having a shorter season much later in the year and having the shorter season that he did have was really beneficial to how people think about Michael Conforto's talent and his value at a time when that is a conversation topic uh, with, with extension talks. Uh, you know, nursing so, an oblique injury all season long is probably uh, the worst way to go into that conversation, whereas having it fully healed by the time you had to play uh, really worked out for him. Silver linings, you know, like uh, it's been a, a horrible year for the, the entire world, but uh, it's probably going to get Michael Conforto uh, a few more millions of dollars. <laughs> uh, uh, let's talk about the Jose Martinez thing, because as you said, he was he was uh, in competition, really, for the 26th spot on, on the roster. And so, uh, you know, while it's certainly unfortunate for him, uh, torn meniscus out probably four months, which is you know really the bulk of the season. And maybe we'll see him at the All-Star break. Uh, what and now there's uh, there's talk that uh, John Heyman has tweeted that they're in the mix for Michael Franco. Uh, Luis Rojas noted that that Brandon Drury is is a little bit bigger part of the roster picture. Uh, how much should I be upset about the Jose Martinez injury? Yeah, like I, I think I came into spring training with there there were three candidates in mind for like the 26th man uh, because I, I think if you look at your bench, you, we know who the eight starters are for the Mets and the position players. And then uh, the the first four on the bench seem relatively set in Nito, Guillaume, Pilar, and VR. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it was really like, are you going to take Martinez? Can we just, can we, can we just start, start calling him PR? Can it be PR <laughs> and VR? Because I'm, I, they, they're, it's, they're spelled like they should rhyme. I know. I'm, I'm, there's going to be so many times where I say PR and Valar. Uh, right. And just mess it. Up. I, I, someone said that the other day on the bro on a broadcast. I don't know which if it was a Mets one or not. So I, I don't want to besmirch the SNY reputation. Um, so I, I think you were thinking Martinez would he would fill kind of a different role. Basically, I don't think he would have started very often, but he would have been kind of your first pinch hitter, especially against lefties, had he been healthy. Or you could have gone with Albert Almora Jr., who's another guy who who would get a, an occasional outfield start, more of a defensive replacement, not as much of an offensive option. Maybe that if you carry him on the bench, Kevin Pillar gets more of, of a pinch hitting opportunity, or you'd carry an extra pitcher, a ninth bullpen pitcher, uh, because there's not restrictions on that this year. So those were kind of the three options going in. I think at the moment, and, and maybe even at the start of spring training, I would have given Almora a little bit of a, heads, uh, a head start over the other guys. Uh, now I think it's kind of Almora or a pitcher, you know, Rojas mm -hmm. mentioned Drury. He's he's a possibility if they want to go outside the organization. You know, I heard from someone that, yeah, they talked about Franco, but, you know, it was probably not something that was going to happen, uh, at least at this point. You know, there are other guys like Michael Franco who are still free agents if you really felt the need to go out and get someone, you know, who, who's capable of hitting lefties and playing somewhere on the field. Uh, yeah, but, it's, uh, it's funny. It's funny with Franco just because, you know, when I – in my head, you – when you see that, you're like, oh, wow, they're going to get, they can get Michael Franco. And then I look, go and look up at stats and like Michael Franco has had a, like a six or seven year career and been worth a, a total uh, of uh, a wins above replacement of 2.5. Like he, I mean, and you know, this is not to knock anyone who's a, a, a major leaguer in any way, but he just, he really hasn't been very good. He's just been so good against the Mets that he feels like a superstar to me. And if you, and it, and it bears out, if you look at the stats, I don't think this is, again, like this is not something that's predictive or something that's going to con continue, but it so happens that Michael Franco has just had way more success against the Mets than he has against really like any other team he's played that much. And so in my head, you're like, oh man, they really, should. wow, that would be cool if they got Michael Franco. Michael Franco has, you know, career war. It's like not much different than like Malik Smith and Jared Parker and a bunch of these other guys that are in camp. He's just, I mean, he's, I, I'm, again, I don't want to knock a major league play, baseball player in a mean way. He's just a guy. Yeah, and like he did not fulfill the, the prospect promise uh, that he showed in Philly. But I, I did the same thing with Cesar Hernandez in the offseason. Uh, and Hernandez, I think, is a, a better player than... Yeah, Franco. and he's a, he's a really, uh, really good he's, defender. 
Yeah. Uh, like he was, he was a guy who like, I just thought of offensively because of what he did to the Mets in 2019, when I believe uh, he hit 400 with a 600 on base percentage and about an 800 slugging percentage against them in 19 games. Uh, th- those are, those are estimates, but it, that's what it felt like uh, that, you know, his offensive numbers were significantly better across the board than they actually are in real life. Uh, and Franco was the same way that year. It was like the two of them who hit, you know, sixth and seventh or something in the Philly order were way worse on the Mets than Bryce Harper and Reese Hoskins or Andrew McCutcheon or and the real hitters in that lineup that, that scare you on a regular basis. Uh, it was really Franco and Hernandez that crushed the Mets in, in 2019. Yeah, which is, it's just sort of feels like classic Mets stuff. Um, but uh, bigger news. And... Bigger than Michael Franco, bigger than than Jose Martinez's injury. The sort of the big thing looming over the camp. We talk, I talked about a little bit last week, saying you know this is this is Port St. Lindor to to borrow a, a convention from from the late great Marty Noble. But um, John Heyman has tweeted that the Francisco Lindor extension talks will begin in earnest this week. Uh, Sandy Alderson sort of said that if. If it goes over, if it if it bleeds into the season, like they want to honor Lindor's request to do it in spring training, but he it sounded like he feels like they'll be able to get it done in the season too, if that's if that's necessary. I have no patience for that. Uh, I have seen this man. Um, I have heard he is fixing J.D. Davis's defense. I have heard he is uh, an extra coach on the field. I have seen him operating the SMY camera during a game. He is everywhere. He's parking cars in the in the team parking lot. I'm sure he's he's uh, constructing the taco in a helmet at Clover Park. Uh, lock this guy up. What is it gonna? Can I, can can it? Can you tell me with certitude that it will happen this week? Uh, I think I, I feel like I can probably tell you with certitude that it won't happen this week. Ah. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I've heard the same thing that, that John Heyman did that. Yeah, they're, they're going to kind of the plan is to get those talks off the ground this week. Uh, and you, I mean, none of us have been in the room for negotiations of, of this kind of magnitude. Uh, my my sense of it is that the Mets go in and say like we'll give you uh, two hundred million dollars for ten years and and Lindor's people say we want eight hundred million dollars for ten years and then they start meeting in the middle somewhere over time. Um, you know I, I think they're, they've got a, both sides have a, a reasonable idea of what this the value is going to be here. It's they're not going to have that huge a negotiating wi- um, range or gap between between their sides. I think going in, uh, we've we've talked about it on the podcast. You know. 280 million is probably your low end and and 350 is probably your high end 350 or 360 so uh in terms of percentage you know it's a 70 80 million dollar window is not that enormous actually uh and I, I think they this is something as long as they're starting now they can get done uh before the end of spring training or, or within the first week or two of the regular season you see extensions announced all the time the first week or two of the regular season uh, so I, as I've said all along, like I, I think this is something that gets done between now and tax day on April 15th. Um, and I, I think this is the easier of the two. It's it's probably actually the easiest of the four possible extensions mm-hmm. if you count Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman in there along with Conforto. Uh, that Lindor is the one that uh, you've got kind of the most invested in off of that trade. Uh, and you've got kind well, of a firm I'm, sense of who he is as a player, uh, even more so than than Conforto, because Conforto's best season was only a sixty game season. Uh, so you can you kind of know where you're going with this, and I, I expect them to get it done. Uh, I just don't know exactly when. Yeah, and I would say like if it you know those deals like you said that that plead into the the first week of April, I would guess that they're mostly done in spring training, and everybody sort of knows it's going to happen, and then they have to cross the T's. And and dot the lowercase J's and such, but um, and and I want to get to Conforto in a second, but I do want to just briefly personal story um, from the Mets the Mets uh, uh, history department. I guess you said no one has ever been in the room, uh, and I'm sure I've told this before. But when when the Mets traded for Yoan Santana, remember it was like contingent on the extension, and I it was. I think my second day working at SNY and Matt Cerrone, who I worked with, who founder of Mets blog, I think people probably know Matt. Um, he was at home and I was, I was, 
on IM with him, and I found out that they were doing the extension talks in a conference room at the SNY offices. And I told Saron, I was like, they're doing them here. And he's like, and I said, like, like that's, isn't that crazy? And I was about to ha- head home. And he's like, well, dude, what are you doing? Like, go go sit outside the room. <laughs> and so, and like, uh, you know, again, this is the type of thing I probably wouldn't share if I was still working, but whatever. Um, and so I just went up and I sat at the receptionist's desk and, and sort of pretended I was the receptionist. And I, I was, I don't know what I was, you know, I couldn't hear what they were saying or anything like that. But um, I was sort of just like, texting and I aming with Cerrone the whole time. And so uh, they ordered dinner and I, t- I told Cerrone and then he posted their order dinner. And I guess they were inside the room. Like, how does he know? How does he know that we got dinner? How does he know that Johan's wife showed up? Um, and, and it was just because I was just sitting there just reporting everything. And then fine, and then I was like, I was like, just like, OK, this is stupid. What am I going to get out of this? Like, what's going to what's going to happen other than like this stupid gossip? And like, right as I'm packing up to leave, some guy who was like a I think like an, an underling of his agent just walks out of the room on the cell phone and he's just like, yeah, it's done, bro. It's done. Six, six, one thirty-seven point five. All right. <laughs> so that is how the the terms of the Johan Santana deal first found their way to the internet was just me just being a fly on the wall in the SNY offices, which is like totally irresponsible. But I didn't know it was my second day. It's, it's you know that I think you get that that excuse carries you. That's a big story to break. That's that's how you do it. That, I mean, that's I I have known uh, a, a reporter in this industry who broke a story because he was accidentally included on an internal email from the general manager of a team. Um, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it, it was not as big a story as, as you would like it to be if that's going to happen to you. But uh, you know, it, it it got him something. Uh, so th- it is it is wild how these things come come about. How you actually do figure something out. Uh, we've, we've all heard stories kind of like that, although I, I think I like yours the best. Uh, I'm happy to, I'm happy to share uh, glory days, you know? Uh, so, but, so I think that, I don't know. I, I want the Mets to, I think that the Lindor extension should be sort of paramount here. And because he's the best player on the team now, even if we haven't seen him play a single meaningful game in a Mets uniform, we know from his history that he is a, a sensational baseball player. He's still young. He's a shortstop. He's a he's a good defender. Like there's all the all the signs that this is a guy you want to lock up long term. But um, I think myself and a, and a lot of Mets fans will kind of feel like, wait, wait, wait a minute, does this mean are they going to back burner Conforto and Syndergaard and Stroman and end? All these guys that I keep saying, you know, Jeff McNeil and, and Pete Alonso and, and the younger guys who aren't close to free agency yet, who I do also think should be getting extensions. Are these all on hold until Lindor gets on or do they work on these concurrently? Because I, I, I think I can understand saying, OK, well, this is the big ticket item. And so we're, we're budgeting. And so let's let's figure out the top end of our budget before we move into the, the middle parts. But at the same time, you could say, like, no, 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 we, this is how we evaluate Michael Conforto is a baseball player. This is what we think he's worth. This is what he and his agent think he's worth. And, and you know, whether regardless of what happens with Lindor, like our, our challenge here is is to find that middle ground and come to an agreement. Yeah, like I, I think Lindor is the top priority. Uh, I do think they can work on these things simultaneously. I, I think you can work on a Lindor extension and a Conforto extension simultaneously. Um, you know, Zach Scott, the, the acting GM, was in the Red Sox front office when they worked on extensions for Chris Sale and Xander Bogarts simultaneously. Uh, I think they announced the Sale one uh, right at the end of spring training. The Bogarts one about 10 days later into the regular season. You know, Bogarts, a, a Scott Boris client, uh, they were able to get that done kind of in that time frame. So I think that's that's possible. I think, you know, the, the other ones you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the, the guys who aren't up for free agency at the end of 21, I think those probably don't happen Uh there's less urgency certainly to do them in spring. Those are conversations you can have over the course of a regular season. When you see extensions announced in season, it's more often for guys like that. Um, you don't see them in, announced in spring or the, the first couple mm-hmm. weeks of the season, yeah. like the, the other more pressing ones. Uh, you know, Syndergaard, uh, I, I feel like if they were going to, to extend him, it might've happened already. It might've been something they talked about uh, around his arbitration number, you know, when he, he signed for basically the same amount that he had last year. Because uh, that would have been kind of when you you talk about it with that with someone whose status isn't really changing that much mm-hmm. uh, over time uh, at this point. Um, so I, I think probably at this point they probably wait that out, and it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of interest uh, from either side, at least at the moment in, in Stroman's case. 
So uh, I do think it's kind of Lindor is is one, Conforto is one A, uh, and we'll see how those develop. I, you know, if I think Conforto is the harder one uh, because there's probably more dispute over exactly what kind of player he is. The track record isn't as long. Uh, he doesn't hasn't reached quite the peak that Lindor has over a 162 game season. Uh, but you know him a little bit better. You know his value in your clubhouse a little bit better. Uh, so I, I think, again, we, we talked about it a week ago, the, the window isn't, the, the, the gap between sides should not be huge, uh, but you've got to get, uh, there's probably less of a, an internal willingness from Conforto uh, to sign something the way Lindor has, has always expressed interest in signing something long-term. I don't know that Conforto's always done that, uh, but you, you extend Lindor, that gives you some leverage over Conforto. Like, like hey, we got the we got this one done. Like, like we're, and also, done, like, you know. we're, we're trying to win, right? Like, we're, you know, I'm sure that's something that, that concerns them. And I think everybody kind of feels pretty good about the Steve Cohen era now. But it's always nice to have that, that proof. Like, not only did we trade for this guy, but we just committed $300 million to him or whatever it's going to be. So, like, hey, look, we got, uh, we, we're going to, we're, we're making moves here. And we're trying to go for it. And if, do you want to be a part of this? And I don't know. I would hope he'd say yes, but probably only if they offer him fair pay, because that is also the case. Right. You also don't want the instance of, of you giving Lindor three hundred plus million dollars and, and Conforto being like, oh, so I'm only or half like, as good as him. I'm only 40 percent, like 60 percent, I mean, whatever. So uh, Ozzy Albies, like I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember the, the details of the deal, but I remember they signed Acuna to a big team friendly extension. And then like, I think it was, it was within a couple, like it was right around the same time. Albies just signed this deal where it was like, dude, what are you doing? And like, you know, uh, while we've discussed like the sort of the win, win aspects of those pre arbitration extensions, Albies is a really good player. And he signed a deal that was just like so wildly below market value for him that it was like, did they like con you into this somehow by saying like, this is how commit, committed we are to winning we got we're gonna bring back Acuna and they're they're good friends so I don't know I, you know I, I, I'm I'm more interested I think in Michael Conforto having a lot of money than in, in Steve Cohen continuing to have so much money <laughs> and so like I kind of want to look out for the players interests there right yeah it you know it, I think uh, there is value like like ser- certainly bringing in Lindor and extending him energizes a fan base uh, tremendously but there is value uh, not just to your fan base, but to your clubhouse in extending the homegrown guy that, that you know, the fans have grown to love over seven years now with the Mets uh, and seen his evolution as a player and as a leader in the clubhouse. I think it sends a really nice message to the other guys who've come up through this system uh, and gotten to the major leagues and paid, you know, put in their blood, sweat and tears uh, to see one of their own kind of rewarded that way. A guy you've come up with to see him rewarded uh, makes you feel better about your own chances of getting rewarded. So I think you know, extending Conforto has obviously good on-field merit for the Mets. I think there's some off-field merit to it as well, given his stature in that clubhouse. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Other news this week, Luis Rojas shocked the world and declared Jacob deGrom the Mets opening day starter. Is Jacob deGrom still good? You know, it's it's debatable. Uh, I believe he was only touching 99 in the his, one of the that first start. Did, maybe he got to 100. I, I don't know. Actually, I didn't pay super close attention. I saw that he hit 99. I was like, yeah, he's, he's still good. He's still good. Uh, uh, yeah, there's, I, no, there's no concern there. Best pitcher in baseball? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you've got someone else has to do it for for a longer period of time than than eleven starts last year. 
to, yeah, to I think, supplant him at this point, especially oh, pitch the way he did last year. Are, are you suggesting Bauer? Because I don't think there. I don't think there's a. I think the only guy I think I could even have the conversation about, and only because partly because there's there's less exposure and he's still sort of on the way up would be would be Shane Bieber, but obviously he just doesn't have nearly the track record of DeGrom. And I'm I'm biased toward Bieber, I will say, because uh, the year the year he came up, he was not a prospect at all. And I made him my my AL rookie of the year pick because if you look at his minor league stats, they were just like off the charts. And I always have this like axe to grind with the prospect guys who are like, oh, what his you know, arm side life on his fastball is not. Um, it's like, okay, but this guy struck out like 200 batters and walked six or something. So uh, he's going to be good. Um, and he is good, but he's not as good as DeGrom because DeGrom is the best. Yeah, I mean, it's probably I'd, I'd probably put Degrom one with a, a reasonable gap down to uh, like Garrett Cole or someone like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'd have to think there's about. A, there's a lot of would actually be. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think I think he's kind of in a class by himself at the moment uh, because there's it's been no one two there's and a half other, years of, of yeah. excellence. There's other guys who have been as good as him during at points of his run, but no one has been as good as him for the entire length of this run, and and it's not close. Right. And and what's really remarkable is the the way he keeps, you know, he's 32 now. He he shouldn't be adding velocity the way he did throughout 2020. Uh and you know, I when we talked to him at the start of spring training, I, I asked him like, "Do you think you can throw that way for an entire a full season rather than just a short one?" And he just kind of smirked and was like, "Yeah, I think I got it." <laughs> so, uh there's yeah. that confidence, you know. Like if Jacob DeGrom comes out throwing 104 in May at some point, like would we really be that surprised or taken aback? No, he keeps getting better. He keeps getting it's uh, yeah, it's 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 wild. It's wild. It's a uh, it's funny to remember the time when and this is baseball, you know, but like when it was like, oh, which of Matt Harvey, Jacob DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Stephen Matson, and uh, I can't even Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler, I was blanking. Which of them will be the best? You know, it was like a it was like a fun debate to have. And now you look back on it, and it's like, and and Zach Wheeler's really good, but uh, yeah, it's laughable, right? That's a laughable conversation at this point. Right, and and Degrom was the one with by far the lowest profile when mm-hmm. he was drafted and when he came up through the minor leagues. Speaking like of I, prospect I remember, guys, yeah, I remember at the start of 2019. I think it was actually just before uh, he started against the Twins and got hit around a bit and ended that quality start streak. But you know, he he pitched really well on opening day that year, and then had the 14 strikeout game in Miami uh, for his second start. And I remember thinking, like, what if he's just like better again than what he was last year? Like what if what is the what is the the top level that a pitcher can get to in the modern in in yeah. modern major league baseball? Because like what what does that look like? You know, because we I think like Jake Arrieta the second half of mm-hmm. 2015 is probably the best prolong you know best half season stretch that I've seen maybe since since Pedro Martinez uh, in in you know 99 2000 with the Red Sox, uh, but with, with Degrom with the way the stuff keeps amping up just a little bit and you know his his year last year was not as good as 2018 2019 was not as good as 2018 uh there are times where he does get hit um but you wonder like what what is the peak has he has he peaked already in 18 or is there still another level that he can get to with consistency uh and endurance into games uh, in a way he didn't have last year uh and and the strikeout numbers that have gone up uh, year after year for him yeah, I always think about, and I know, you know, I was a much different game, pitchers mound at a different height, but like the Bob Gibson 1.12 ERA, to me, it seems like that is probably like the limit of dominance, because I think that at some point, like you, you have to throw strikes, right? Like the if you're pitching, you have to, you have to put the ball over the plate. And if you put the ball over the plate to major league hitters, eventually, you know, every once in a while, they're going to luck into a few hits and every once in a while they're going to, you know, string those hits together in a, in a beneficial way for the offense. And, and you're going to allow a run, right? Like I, I don't think it's possible to be, to there's no way you could be good enough to have like a 0.4 ERA for a season. I, I'd like to see Jake Degrom try, but I think like there is diminishing returns to some to some extent. Like there's only so good you're you're ever gonna be, and it seems like right down like around anywhere any really anywhere be, below two, but especially once you get below like one six, it's like this is as good as a pitcher can be. If you're throwing strikes, you can't be any better than this. 
especially with the defense that he personally has behind oh, him. Yeah. Uh, well, the Mets yeah. have, have not, you know, we've got Sandy Alderson mentioning how they don't have defensive geniuses all over the field, uh, yeah. which he said on, on ESPN. First, first of all, like, uh, I actually didn't check. Were, were people mad about that? I thought it was funny. I thought it was uh, funny. I also didn't check. Um, I, I mean, Look, it's it's not like it can't they can't it can't be a secret that the Mets are sacrificing some defense this year, right? Like they everyone sort of felt like okay, there's a they can go the route of adding a, a good defensive center fielder uh, to bump Nimmo to left and and Dom Smith into another role, but um, you know I think that they want Smith's bat in the lineup, which makes a lot of sense. But to do that, you need to play him in the field. And that means you're not going to play P. Alonso in left field. You're going to play Tom Smith in left field. That means you're going to play Nimmo in center. And that means you have two guys who just aren't really going to be league average, right? They're going to be a, a, a step below league average. Their positions, moreover, it seems like J.D. Davis is the guy at third base. And that, that adds another guy into the mix who's, who's probably not going to be, certainly not going to be a plus defender, right? And, and I think... Um, it's something we're talking about because I, I, you had an article about it earlier this week about the, the work the Mets are doing. Uh, he's, your, your article focused specifically on Tony Tarasco and, and the work Nimmo and Smith are doing in the outfield. But um, you know, there's been talk about of J.D. Davis improving his footwork under the, the, the watchful eye of Francisco Lindor. Can I at least hope for a better – because there's a – Oh, really, really. And I don't want to scoop your stat, but it was a really eye-opening stat. Over the last, since 2017, the Mets are 50 runs worse than the second-worst defensive team, which is the Baltimore Orioles, which has been fielding, the Baltimore Orioles have been feeling like a double-A team for the last few years. And the Mets are still 50 runs worse than the Baltimore Orioles over that time. Can we, is there a way I can see, like, a minus-five defense, like something close to the pack? Yeah, I mean that like that's really the aim for them. The aim is not to be uh, the the Dodgers or uh, I think the Diamondbacks have been a really good defensive team uh, in a, cu- a couple of the last few years. Uh, you know, like this team that that steals that that steals runs from you all across the board. The goal is to be like closer to average, to not be a bottom five defensive team. Uh, and you know, you you can blame Sandy Alderson for it. He's been. He's, de-emphasized defense for a long time uh, during his previous tenure and throughout his his major league career. Uh, also, you know, Sandy Alderson de-emphasizing defense is one of the reasons the Mets have such a good offense. So it right. goes hand in hand. Um, but, I, you know, I, there's, I think there's only so much you can do in spring training to make it better. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if kind of the the various analytical things they're putting in place in terms of Brandon Nimmo playing deeper because he's much better coming in than he is going back, uh, if that helps him. Because his his most egregious mistakes last year uh, were the, the balls getting over his head where he'd get turned around a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if, if J.D. Dave is playing uh, a little bit shallower um, so that he can charge uh, soft ground balls to third better, uh, if that allows him to, to feel that those balls better without losing too much in terms of his range and his first step quickness, you know? So, so those are kinds of the improvements they're trying. Uh, you really want to see, you know, like McCann behind the plate, uh, Lindor at short, those are kind of your plus defenders, especially if McCann can carry over the framing jumps that he made last year. Conforto in right McNeil at second are kind of your average defenders. Uh, and then the other guys, Alonzo Davis Smith, and Nimmo, you're just hoping get are closer to average than they are to the bottom of the league. And Alonzo, to his uh, to his credit, was there in 2019. We just didn't see a lot of him uh, in 2020 at first base. So I think that that bears watching. But uh, th- those are the the four you you want to see them uh, not be terrible and not you know Louis Rojas has talked about it throughout spring uh, that we're emphasizing it, but we we still need to do it. You know, we yesterday or, or on Monday said if, if we want to say we're a good team we've got to go out there and be a good team uh we've got to do it now uh so it's it'll be interesting that is i think the biggest weakness this team has it reminds me a bit of like you know the 2015 mets everyone remembers uh, but also like the tigers teams in 2012 and 2013 when they were able to get to the playoffs but not able to win some series uh because of 
uh, their flawed defense when they were playing like Cabrera at third. Yeah, Miguel was uh, playing. Miguel Cabrera was playing third, and yeah, and that, yeah, I do remember that. That was like it was wild. It was like really late in his career. They're just like, yeah, we're gonna move him back to third base because Miguel Cabrera is gonna hit his way, you know. It's, and and I think that's like that's like sort of the more extreme example of the idea with JD Davis, right? It's like this guy's not gonna probably not going to be a good third baseman, but all he has to do is hit well enough to make up for his defense. And it seems like there's a fairly good chance he can do that. Right. Like that, you know, if, if JD Davis has a, a 2019 type offensive season, you're not as worried. You're not worried as much about what he's doing at third base uh, than if he has kind of a 2020 type offensive season where he's still better than the league average hitter. Uh, but then you do start to wonder, you know, mm-hmm. in a lineup that is as deep as the Mets theoretically is, uh, do you decide to trade uh, offense for defense at one spot there and, and play someone like Luis Guillorme a little bit more often than you would otherwise? I'll make uh, two points to this, to the defense thing. And and first would be that I think I have a little more hope for Dom Smith than I do for the rest of those guys, just because he has so little exposure to left field. And like, I don't see, you know, it's not like he's a speedster, but he doesn't seem terribly slow either. And, you know, he has a reputation as a really good defender at first base. And so, you know, obviously he's not going to have the practice, but he's, I would have to hope, going to get a lot more practice this spring than he's really ever had before at, at that spot. And so, you know, I would hope that there could be some marginal improvement there. Um, and the other thing is defense in general, I think, uh, has become... We've become so reliant on the defensive metrics to inform, and rightfully, we've become reliant on the defensive metrics to inform how we assess defenders. But those metrics are incredibly fickle. And, you know, they'll say you need a three-year sample to really understand how a guy compares to league average. And by the end of a three-year sample, he's probably a different player or his knees are going and, and you can't really count it on moving forward. Uh, uh, as a as a predictive stat, so it's a, it's like sort of a, a, a flawed type thing to look at to or to to read too much into. And and with Davis, um, I don't know. It's it you know he doesn't look great. He doesn't look great at third base. But when I when you look, it's like I don't I don't see why he's gonna be the worst defense. Like he's got the arm for it. He's you know the the footwork or whatever. Like I, again, I'm no scout. It doesn't seem like it's it's all so bad that he's gonna be like, oh, this guy absolutely can't handle this and shouldn't be there. Um, and I, I think back to David Wright, and uh, there was a three-year stretch when when Wright, if you look at UZR, when Wright was the worst third baseman in baseball. By UZR, and I remember thinking at the time, like, okay, like, yeah, he hasn't looked great, but he's not. I to me, like, to my eye, like, he simply doesn't look like the worst third baseman in baseball. And then the next year, uh, Tim Tuffle took over as their infield coach and, and repositioned him, and it turned out that just like a, a simple change of positioning was what Wright needed to return to being basically an, a league average defender at, at third base, and so. That would be, I guess, my hope for J.D. Davis. Um, you know, it's, I think it's harder probably with Nimmo because center field is, is so very much predicated on like speed and reaction time. And some of those things are, are more difficult to, to improve. Um, but I would have to hope that like these guys can that. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is too optimistic, but I think we, we tend to look at baseball players like they're just robots and they are what they are. But, you know, they practice a lot. Yeah, like I'm probably more hopeful on Nimmo than on Davis, the opposite of you, just because mm-hmm. Nimmo had more of a, a defensive track record before 2020, which is such a, an abbreviated season. Like that's when he looked really bad and, and untenable as a defender in center field. Right. Uh, and in 2018, 2019, he was not um, he was not like a world beater in center field, uh, but he definitely he, he was good enough there to get by, especially when you considered what he brought offensively. Right. Davis, I look at, and he's just, he's never been that good defensively at any position. Right. And he's been kind of yanked around a bit. You know, you mentioned Smith and left. He field. has a, he has like, a lot of, ex- he has a lot of, because ex- I, I, I thought about that too. I, he spent, he has like over 400 games in the minors at th- third base. So the, like the, I don't buy as an excuse the, oh, he hasn't played that much third base. He's played a lot of third base. Yeah. Like that's the position that he has played the most uh, and uh, has gotten the most comfortable at. So you know, the, the, this isn't his first go-round trying to improve defensively and trying some new things out. 
Uh, I'm not giving up on him. I just think uh, the the ceiling for what he can get to as a defender in 2021 uh, is still probably below average uh, around the league. You just hope that, you know, he's not, again, like the worst or third worst uh, at that position across baseball. Last thing we got before we, we wrap up is a, is a reader question or a listener question. I'm sorry, I'm in the habit of saying reader, um, but a listener question. And this one comes from my childhood next door neighbor, Pat, who was uh, uh, my older brother's good friend. His, his younger brother was, was uh, my best friend growing up. And, and it was a, the sort of like 80s, 90s sitcom relationship where I could just walk in their house. Um, so this is someone I know very well. And he, he had a, a very long-winded question uh, about the Mets bullpen. Uh, I have shortened it a little bit, but it says, do you think our bullpen is built to win at the level fans are expecting? His expectation is the Mets are a playoff caliber team, should win 90-plus games. I think a lot of people are expecting that. Um, he says his only real worry is the bullpen. If Diaz stinks like he did in 2019, do we have the guys to take over the closing role? And do we have reliable depth to get through a season and then a playoff run? When Lugo comes back, can he even pitch back-to-back days? Are they two quality relievers short of making us feel confident in a playoff run? Is it too much to expect that one of Batances and Familia can have a decent season? Um, and if they don't, do they lack the bullpen depth, depth to compete with the Dodgers and Padres and Braves? Yeah, like I think, first of all, uh, is, is it Pat who sold me out on the Domino story? No. No, uh, no, he didn't. That was a that was a separate reader with a question that uh, was really good, but didn't fit into the show that well. So I was gonna pick that one for for that was Matt. His name was, uh, which okay. is also one of one of Pat's siblings was named Matt, but it's a different Matt. Okay, I'll keep that in mind, Matt. <laughs> no, uh, the with the bullpens, the hardest thing for me to judge is like uh, because bullpens are so. Uh, capricious from year to year you know you can you can trade for edwin diaz thinking like he could be as amazing as he was in 2018 but certainly at the worst that edwin diaz is going to give us like a three and a half era in 2019 and be a serviceable closer and then he has the kind of year he had in 2019 uh that so much can change because the, the sample sizes are small that it's it's hard for me to say like this bullpen can't do it because uh if dylan Batansis uh, looks anything like he used to. If Jerry's Familia is decent, you know, is is okay in a way that he was he was more or less okay last year uh, with his ERA. Uh, if Miguel Castro stops walking quite as many people, like there there are so many different avenues toward the bullpen being fine, um, and there's there's avenues to the bullpen being really good. There's also avenues for the bullpen not being that good, and it's it's Lugo not being healthy uh, at the start of the season. It's Patanzas and Familia not being uh, their old selves. It's Diaz struggling uh, to close out games the way he has uh, in 2019, and even a little bit in 2020 when he was pitching great, he still blew uh, a, a few saves there. Uh, it's Trevor May struggling in a, a way that he hasn't in the last couple of years. Uh, there's just so many different things that can go right or wrong in a bullpen. I think on paper, the Mets have... Uh, one of the better bullpens in baseball. I don't think it's the best. Uh, you know, it's certainly not like the super bullpen that the Yankees have built through free agency or that the Royals built, uh, you know, half a decade ago and that different teams were emphasizing a little bit more then. Uh, but I, I think it's probably better than most in baseball on paper, which doesn't mean it it, it could still be the worst in, you know, like when you look at Francisco Lindor at shortstop, you're like, yeah, I think he's better than most shortstops in baseball. I certainly know that he's not going to be the worst shortstop in baseball uh, in 2021. Whereas with a, a bullpen, it, it can go, you know, you can have a bullpen of the same guys be like second in bullpen ERA one year and 30th the next. I think that actually happened to the Mariners one year uh, with like the same crew because Tom Wilhelmson was no longer any good. Like that's the kind of thing that happens with bullpens. So that's why it's, it's both hard for me to get really excited or really down about a bullpen. Uh, and I, I always think like July 31st is a great time to fix your bullpen, uh, even more so than the regular season, even more so than the offseason. So I agree with everything you just said, except that I will say that I 100% believe like the best way to build a bullpen is to just bring in a bunch of talented live arms and kind of roll the dice that's that's all you could do right like the the royals um yeah there was a, it was a great bullpen you 
and they had guys who threw it like there's you know there are the you can't just like have me go out there and hope I have a, a good season out of the bullpen you have to do some some scouting and you have to do some uh you know some some configuring but there is uh, obviously a huge sort of error bar for bullpen performance every year because all of these guys operate in tiny samples and because uh, with live arms, I think you get a lot of wildness and, and you get some injuries and all of these other things. But all that said, every year I feel like, oh, I'm saying, oh, the Mets had the right approach. You know, they brought in a bunch of live arm guys and, they, they, you know, they're going to find the right mix here. And then it feels like every year the Mets aren't that team that is second in the, in the, in the league in ERA. They're always that team. That's 30th in the league and in, in ERA, and I, and I know that at this point there's not a lot of continuity between uh, you know who was bringing in these particular guys. A lot of whom were brought in by Brody Van Wagnen, some of whom were brought in by Sandy Alderson the first time around, and and so you know you can't say like oh it's, the Mets front office can't build a bullpen. Although this particular front office, the San, Sandy Alderson's front office, is the case in point that has not been really a strength, even even when they went to the World Series. Um, I, so I don't know. It just, I, I kind of, it, it feels like for the Mets, and I think this is for a lot of teams, but it feels like, especially for the Mets, the bullpen is always that just like sort of looming sense of doom where you're like, oh, like in eighth inning of a game in September that they have to win against the Braves because they're trying to win the division and you see the door kick open and Dylan Batanz is coming out like, how am I going to feel about that? You know, um, except that you wrote a brilliant feature on, on Dylan Patances this week and he has gone full nerd. So tell me about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think one of the, the interesting things when you get into spring training and I remember uh, talking about this with a, a reporter a few years back when I was covering uh, the Red Sox that, you know, I, I, I found him like, he believed too much. He was too optimistic about everyone's chances uh, of turning their, you know, turning whatever recent struggles they had around. And he said, you just have to give me like a plausible reason for why you weren't good. Uh, and then, I'll, you know, I'll buy a plausible reason. And I think uh, Dylan Batances has offered a particularly plausible reason for why he wasn't good last year. Uh, you know, obviously he was hurt in 19. That's not, you know, that that's different from underperformance last year. Uh, but last year, he, he still had uh, that issue with his lat that he kind of hid for a little while and then came up, came forward with at the end of the season. Uh, and that was really impinging uh, the flexibility of his shoulder and his arm slot dropped a lot. Uh, and that it, it was much lower than it had been for his best years, which means that his fastball, instead of staying up in the zone, starts cutting, uh, losing his, its, its height in the zone uh, and just doesn't get the same kind of swing and miss the velocity was really down too. And that's, that's another issue here. Uh, and the velocity has been better in this spring than it was last year, but it's still not where you want it to be. Uh, and look, I, I wrote a similar thing about Robert Gazelman before 2018 and how uh, he also had to work through the flexibility in his shoulder to get his arm slot where he wanted it. Uh, and it, you know, it, it worked out for a little bit for Gazelman, but still not, hasn't been kind of the, the panacea to all that ailed him as a pitcher uh, at an earlier stage. So I think, you know, there's a, like, you can imagine sometime in September looking back at Dylan Batances, who has been your eighth inning guy for six months and been lights out and said, this is, you know, all he had to do was, was free up his shoulder and feel better about it. Uh, and he's gotten back to being what he was, uh, for several years with the Yankees. And you can also imagine, uh, in September, uh, Dylan Batances being the guy who throws the fifth inning when the starter gets knocked out, uh, because he's still throwing 91 instead of 94. 596 like we're used to even 98 like he used to throw uh and just can't get uh swings and misses in the zone with his fastball the way that he usually does so it's one of those that can go both ways i'm intrigued by what he did in the offseason at rockland peak performance in paramus new jersey uh working with the people there uh but again like you have to see it on the field and we haven't haven't really seen it yet in spring training he's gotten hit uh, a little bit hard in his first two outings uh and I think it's important to think that it doesn't have to be perfect by opening day. This is going to be an, an evolution for him over the course of the season uh, to build up. It's always been that way for him. Um, but I think he has a more plausible reason for why last year was was really bad for him uh, than, than some other guys, you know, coming off of bad seasons have in the past. 
And I'll say to me, Patances is a big sort of hinge for the bullpen. And there's, there's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a committee. So there's no, never one guy that, that everything sort of turns on. But, uh, you know, I've watched a lot of Patances when he was with the Yankees and that guy, when he is on and, and arm injuries being what they are, like, who knows if it, if it ever comes back, but he was, he, it's not like he was just a very good reliever. He was the best, you know, like he was like completely unhittable for a while. Um, you know, just awesome to watch. And so that's a guy I'm really hoping uh, can bounce back. And, and, and your article made me hopeful as well. Last note on this, and this was something that blew my mind and it made me almost a little bit depressed for a moment that I didn't know it. Gary Cohen brought it up in the bullpen. Edwin Diaz has credited his turnaround in 2020 to the fact that he went back to his old entrance music from Seattle. And I was racking my brain because I was thinking, why do I not know this? Why did I not recognize the, the new uh, entrance music? And I even went and I found the entrance music and I played it and I said, how do I not recognize it? This song is incredible. It's got this cool, super dramatic, it's like a dance song with this crazy, like epic, sort of like fantasy feeling trumpet uh, riff on top of it. I'm just saying, why do I not know this? And then I realized I didn't go to any games in 2020 because no one went to any games in 2020. So why would I know that? Why did they even have entrance music? Um, and and um, man, that made me psyched because it's, it's the type of thing that like, I think is very important and it doesn't seem like it really has ever affected someone's play before. But uh, Edwin, Edwin Diaz says he needs that, he needs that entrance music. Yeah, it's it's nice. You know, I, I feel like fans and writers care very deeply about entrance music and all silently critique or praise a player's entrance music. Uh, you know, I think closer entrance music or reliever entrance music uh, sticks out to me probably more than any. Like when Andrew Miller started using some Johnny Cash. Uh, Go long for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Al Alfredo Aceves had amazing entrance music for his brief tenure as a closer in Boston that I will have to look up and listen to the minute we get off this podcast. Have you seen uh, the Hansel Robles video? Yes, in, of course I've seen uh, yeah, the Hansel. Okay. And like the white you, you stallion. Understand. Yeah. <laughs> you understand as a pitcher how that, that could play into the adrenaline you're feeling. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little different. Last year there was no fans to get into the song. Uh, but hey, if, again, like, so much of this game is confidence and uh, a mentality. And I don't know that the entrance music is what made Edwin Diaz pitch better in 2020. I think he probably would have pitched better regardless of what you were playing while he came into the game. You could have been playing Desperado and I think he would have pitched reasonably better than he did in 2019. No, he um, needs that song. He needs Timmy Trumpet. <laughs> but Timmy Trumpet, my nickname in high school. Um, but, is that right? Uh, <laughs> I have no musical talent, no. Uh, they called me much worse. Um <laughs> but, you know, if he believes that the entrance music uh, is is helpful to him, then by all means, like the placebo effect is real and go with it. What's your song? The bullpen door opens. Tim Britton is coming in. You're in this reality. You throw like 104 and you're an unhittable closer. What is your song? You know, I've always liked The Joker and the Thief by Wolfmother, probably because of the scene in The Hangover when uh, Zach Galifianakis is coming down the... Uh, the steps of the casino to it before he, he starts running the table in blackjack that, that that could work for me okay that works I, i've always said it would be keep their heads ringing the dr dre song but i think another thing i might play with if i was good enough i think would be really cool um first of all i, I would i would try to get the team to hire like a string quartet to play me in for like a <laughs> weird like hannibal lecter uh, approach but also i would love to coordinate with the fans and be like what we're gonna do when i come in is dead silence there's going to be no one make a noise don't stand up don't go to the bathroom like just everybody shut up all of the vendors shut up everybody in the sta stadium be as quiet as you possibly can be so all anybody hears is the sound of my 108 mile an hour fastball just like popping the catcher's glove while i warm up and everybody can just like sit and stew and think about how screwed they are because they're about to face and you throw, you know, you throw the first one to the backstop just for intimidation. Oh, obviously, yeah. Got to be effectively wild with your 108 mile an hour fastball. That would that, be, a, that is like the old, uh, I guess, Trevor Hoffman coming into Hell's Bells. You get that kind of silence with just the bell at first, so you get a good feel of that before it, it builds up. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, and that was always, yeah, that was, that's a, that's a good, you want the instantly recognizable, like, before you come, it's the WWF thing, WWE thing, you want it, you want everyone to know it's your music before you step out of the bullpen, right? And so the Hell's Bells thing was great for that. Uh, Tim, we should wrap up there, because we've already gone way over time, but hey, it was fun talking. Uh, thank you, as always, for, for informing me about the Mets this week. Oh, anytime. Thank you for telling me how you broke the Johan Santana story. Uh, that's, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a nugget for you. That's, it's just a little bit of journalism advice, Tim. That's all I can, <laughs> I can give you is just sometimes just set yourself up outside the place where you, outside the room where it happens. Um, you can check us out on, please uh, rate us and review us on iTunes. If you have a question like Pat, and if you have some dirt on Tim, like Matt, send it to me at asktedbird.com. At, at gmail.com and we will consider it for this show thank you so much for listening and peace out adios as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.